Lights up on a park bench. Lights up on a desk. Lights up. A podcast by the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga. Sadie Collins in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I'll be playing Jesse. I'm Savannah Taito. I'm in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I'll be playing Claire. I'm Rachel Craig. I'm from Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I'll be playing Sellers. Hey, I'm Brian Tishnell. I am in Los Angeles, and I'm playing John. Lights up on Jesse, John, and Claire. My parents used to take me and my brothers every summer to a cabin on a small island in southern coastal Maine. Westport Island, or Seal Island as the tourists call it. It was almost always cool. Screened in porch facing Sheepscot Bay, the sound of lobster boats humming, the sun creeping in the windows. Inside it was all wood, except for the fireplace, which was brick, and covered in seashells and hollow crab carcasses. If I eat lobster, I get gout. We're not there yet. It became my happy place. I couldn't afford to rent the exact childhood cabin, so I settled for the one next door. It was a little smaller than the one Jesse described. Bunk beds instead of full bedrooms. Bunk beds are awesome. The porch was screened in, except for the floor. In between the boards, mosquitoes find their way in. And small black spiders. Nature is not awesome. I needed us to come together. To my old happy place. Something happened in college. It wasn't a big deal. We all met in college. But it became a big deal. We all had sex with each other at different times. Not like altogether, more like trading partners over the course of four years. And it ruined our friendship. I wouldn't say it ruined. 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 Mm, it ruined. Ten years after I graduated, I realized I don't really have friends. What happened? I didn't want to be alone, so. I friended John on Facebook, and then I found Claire, and we made a plan. It was a good plan. Stay in a cabin on Westport Island. No internet, no phone. Force us all to just be with each other and see if there was a friendship to save. Just the three of us. Oh, I thought there'd be four. Nobody called Stephen? After what happened between Jesse and Stephen in college... It shouldn't have happened, but we're grown-ups now, right? So we can try to get back to how it used to be before. Before. We're all grown-ups because Jesse says we're grown-ups. If Jesse says it's so, it must be so. <sighs> no Wi-Fi. No phone line. The front yard. All water. Smell of salt. Seaweed. That's where I saw her. You have to believe what Claire says is true, because I didn't. There was like a long parchment on the wall, like torn out of a scroll. Old. Yellow. 
hash marks on it, as if days had passed. Months. Years. And a pen. A fountain pen. It was gorgeous. Jade. I didn't even think it would write. So I lifted the pen. Never lift a strange pen. And I decided to keep track of our time, too. Claire makes a mark. The fog rolled in. All around us. I can't see the land on the other side. It'll clear up by morning. But it's weird, though. Like, you know Booth Bay Harbor and whatever must be on the other side somewhere. But, like, you can't see it. I take a flashlight down to the water. Thought I might take the boat out. Prove to myself that nature isn't really that scary. Just a little plastic dinghy. Can hold about 308 pounds, and if you sit right in the center, you won't flip it. But if you sit on the back... Like he did. Got him! I flipped the boat! It came up under him! Ah! It pushed him up! No, God, no! The most playful seal I'd ever seen. Wait, what? It moved him toward the float at the end of the dock. And I was up. And then this face leaps out of the water at me. This face. I had never seen a seal that close. But it wasn't a seal's face. It disappeared under the water and... I must have imagined her. It. Her. I don't know. We got John in. We found some towels. I hadn't unpacked mine yet. And we dried him off. Nice. I dry him off. And I felt grateful. I know it sounds crazy, but with the fog, the dark skies, the cold, dark water, the seal was just a reminder that nature isn't really that scary. Uh, nature is terrifying. (laughs) It wasn't a seal. It was a woman. A beautiful woman. I don't say it out loud. The next morning, I'm sitting on the porch, and I can see the sun just start to rise. I get off my bunk bed, and I see Jesse sleep below. I'm pretending to be asleep. (sighs) Why can't I find the words? As an experiment... I make another mark on the paper and the fog rolls in again. And she's beautiful. Soulful eyes. Hello. Hello. Can I help you? No, I'm fine, thank you. Your friend that fell in the water, is he okay? Yes, he's fine. Thank you. Are you staying in a nearby cabin? I'm staying nearby. It's beautiful here, isn't it? I mean, if the fog will ever lift. It will. Soon. It all goes away. Jessie, my friend who brought us up here, she said this happens sometimes. The fog rolls in and... Yes. Sorry. I tell her. For what? She says. 
and I realize I don't know her name. Sellers. And I tell her, your eyes are magical. No, I don't tell her. <laughs> I mean to tell her, but I can't get the words out even though I'm standing here and my heart is suddenly pounding and, and, and... Did I mention I didn't call anyone? I could have called someone. Stephen. I could have called Stephen. I look into her eyes and there's magic. And I want to say I see the magic, but my heart is tongue-tied. And before I can tell her about the magic, she says, Thank you. Your eyes are magical, too. That was the first thing I thought when I saw you yesterday. The fog rolls out. And she disappears with the fog. Who are you talking to? I put another hash on the paper. Another mark. But the damnedest thing. My last mark disappeared. And look, there's something I hadn't noticed before. It says, One perfect night. By the time John leans in to see, the words, they're gone. I see John and Claire standing close to each other, and I say, Let's spend the day in Wiscasset. We head out to buy trinkets. And they don't have local wine. Why don't they have local wine? I think I still love you. I don't say this out loud. I know. I don't say this out loud. We wait in line two hours for lobster rolls. I pull John aside and say, I invited Claire out here because there were issues, meaning... There should be a buffer. Stephen. <clears throat> Jesse slept with Stephen when I thought we were finally going to get together. So, yeah, inviting a buffer makes sense, but I feel a little guilt. Friends shouldn't be buffers. Uh, I think she heard me. We get back to the cabin. My toe is already getting stiff. I ate the damn lobster. Oh, it was amazing. I should have picked up cherry juice from Shaw's, but I thought, you know, it's one little lobster. What harm, you know? I make a mark on the paper. The fog rolls in. Again. Ugh, I get in the hammock. I'm going to stay in the porch for the night. It's like someone stuck a fork in the base of my big toe and is twisting and pulling everything up. Ugh. I don't want Jesse to hear me writhe. I brought ibuprofen and weed. I use both. I try to tell them about a woman on the water. It dawns on me. I remember hearing a story when we first came up here when I was a kid. The Selkie of Seal Island. Her story is a little different than traditional Selkie myths. I tell them how many years ago, a lobster man sat out for 13 nights trying to catch a glimpse of the mythical Selkie of Seal Island. How he stole her coat when she slipped it off one night in the fog. How he disappeared with it. And how the woman, frozen in time, immortal, swims in the bay, helping those who need help, looking for someone to love her for one perfect night. And how she may be freed from the curse and live one full human life. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Jesse laughs. John laughs. I say nothing. 
And then I say everything. I know the Selkie. I'm the one she loves. Oh, uh, I mean, I I knew Claire had issues. Especially after Stephen. And Claire sits outside. We leave her be. I talk with John until I need to go to bed. What the (laughs) hell am I doing here? (laughs) Jesse still likes me. John still likes Jesse. And I like... God, I'm going nuts. There's something here between us. And Claire is like this crazy ass fifth wheel. And we know it. And she knows it. And shit. (sighs) I stay in the hammock. I tell him he needs rest. I go inside. I stay on the porch with John. Unnoticed. I go to the paper, and I'm going to make a mark. Because maybe, somehow, this is the thing bringing her in. But I decide not to. And the fog rolls out just a little. But I see her in the water. I step outside onto the deck. It might be too cold for you. It might be. Who are you, really? Just a friend. You didn't try to go out on the boat today. Should I? And then something amazing happens. She gracefully stands and the water seems to lift her to me. They face each other. Who is Stephen? Someone I thought I loved. Who are you? Someone who... I interrupt her. My mouth against hers. (laughs) Oh, shit. (laughs) I'm not bold, I tell her. Not usually, I say. I don't know what came over. Sellers kisses Claire. You could come with me. Water is cold, I tell her. It isn't always... I'm a terrible swimmer. You can learn. Or I could come inside and stay with you whenever the fog rolls in. (laughs) What? Oh, there's a fog sound. There's a sound. What was that sound? I heard something, too. I look at him and don't kiss him. She doesn't kiss me. I look at the parchment with the hash marks. Is something wrong? New writing? Blurry, distant. Did you write on this? I can't move, I tell her. Scout. And, um, an erection. Why didn't she kiss me? Selkie and Claire, it reads. Did you write Claire's name on this? One perfect night. One perfect. What do you do? Swim. Eat. And love. Love you. If you'll let me. Claire! My friends are calling. My heart is calling. I don't say. I understand. She kisses me. And in the moonlight, I see her body move gracefully into the water and speed away. Claire! I hear John fall out of the hammock. Ah! Oh, God. 
curse you, gout! I lean off the dock, looking over the waves. I don't want to chase anyone anymore. Not Stephen. Not even her, out on the waves. I can be loved. Someone can love me. That's the last thought I remember having, because... We fell in! It's pitch black out there. She'll die! But then... This woman picks Claire up, brings her inside. Kisses her unconscious lips. And leaves? She was... She was... Something magical. We spend the rest of the two weeks in peace. We play board games and buy pottery. I finally kissed John. You do? Nice. And I look out on the water. I say goodbye to Sellers. That was her name. Sellers. And I say goodbye to Stephen. And finally, I say goodbye to John and Jesse. Less than a year later, me and Jesse, we get engaged. We message Claire, but her responses are short messages or emojis. It's hard to keep up with her social calendar on Facebook and stuff. And then one day, she writes, I returned to Seal Island. Which is what we all started calling it. For our honeymoon, John and I rent a cabin. My childhood one. And a lobsterman tells us about this girl who's been staying here and how she took a boat out on the sheepscot one night. One perfect night. And was last seen holding hands with someone. And jumping in the water. Lights fade. Humanities Tennessee is pleased to announce that the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga and the Lights Up Podcast are grant recipients to the Sustaining the Humanities through the American Rescue Plan grant program. A program made possible by the National Endowment for the Humanities as part of the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan Act of 2021, approved by the U.S. Congress and signed into law on March 11. Because of this program, Humanities Tennessee is able to provide $941,454 to 91 organizations throughout the state. The purpose of SHARP grants is to support jobs in the humanities, keep humanities organizations open, and assist the field in its response to and recovery from the needs created or exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. These grants may focus on humanities projects or leveraging operational support stemming from the devastating impact of the coronavirus pandemic. They may also help organizations plan for the future and begin the long process of response and recovery to the pandemic. ETC and the Lights Up podcast would like to thank Humanities Tennessee and the National Endowment for the Humanities for this amazing opportunity. Hello and welcome back to our I guess it's not really our finale. We could say our penultimate episode of Lights Up for season three. We Today is the last uh, play that we are presenting to you, but we will have um, some special treats in store, as always, at the end of the season for you. 
Um, and we are very excited to be joined by a playwright that you may remember from season one. So I'm here with Christy and with John Patrick Frey. Hello. Hello there. How are you? Yes, we are so excited to have you back. Uh, we just had the pleasure of listening to your fantastic play. We got to listen to Sadie Collins, Savannah Taedo, Brian Tishnell, and Rachel Craig bring it to life. And what was that like being able to hear it but not see it? You know, what what tri- what triggered for you? Oh, it was fantastic. And um, the way I wrote this piece... Um, Actually, the way the characters present this piece might sound like, hey, there's people running around in my head. But the way the story was told, they just started telling the story themselves. So it really did lend itself to audio more so than than video. And um, so I feel like I was experiencing the piece the way it was meant to be experienced, which was really, really lovely. When did you write this? Oh, golly. Um, So... I'm not known for brevity, so we have to take a little journey. I I started this sort of um, back in 2006 after my wife and I were at our honeymoon in Maine. My in-laws had rented a cabin on Westport Island near Wiscasset. And it was a cabin that belonged to their family, um, or belonged to a family friend, rather. And... um, and there's just something about being there for two full weeks. And at the time, we didn't have cell phones and there's no internet access and no landline. And one was really, truly unplugged. And we've gone up there every year. And I've tried a couple of different things, you know, because I really wanted to set something in that cabin. It was like I tried a murder mystery. I tried to write some other kind of period drama. But nothing was really clicking. So I decided, well, we're going to leave this alone. This will just be a space that we come to that's amazing. And, you know, and kind of the space just exerts its influence. And I just, I don't know. So then one day I was looking at my, my father-in-law has a very special pen. My, and, um, you know, and something about the pen, something about um, there was an image I saw online that had a piece of paper or something. And um, and suddenly one day just all clicked. And that was maybe seven years ago was it just kind of all clicked and came together. It was like, aha, got it. Um, and the play was originally a little bit longer and, um, I trimmed it down. It was presented with the planet connection zoom festivity a couple of years ago. And for that, it had to be 15 minutes long or close to 15 minutes. They were kind of forgiving if it went over a couple of minutes and, but it was close to like a half hour. So I condensed it as much as possible. And by condensing it, the characters suddenly had much clearer stories, much cleaner objectives, um, much easier banter, and they really came to life through the editing process. Um, And then I gave it one more go after after it was presented. So I'd say that the way it is now is the way it's been for about a year and a half, maybe two years. It's so fun having um, playwrights back uh, that we've previously interviewed. Um, I hope that our audience enjoys it as much because we can kind of track a little bit of your process too, because, you know, Green Sound came from obviously personal narratives and experiences in your life. And it's so fun to hear that that's, you know, still kind of how you work. You loved this cabin, you found this pen, there was an image online, you know, that whole, and Christy and I are definitely going to get into these themes of, you know, college relationships, that friend group, uh, and sometimes romantic relationships you develop in your early 20s and how that's pretty universal and whatnot. But so you have all these experiences and it's so cool as a listener 
to see like something like Seal Island come out of you as well. Like that's quite, you know, it's very clearly you and your style, but it's a very different piece. And it's just so fun um, to hear that and hear how artists have developed their own voice and their own process. So uh, thank you for coming back and just even that alone sharing with us. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like a lot of my stuff is personal, um, but it's like, I imagine everybody's stuff is personal, but, um, you know, it's borderline autobiography, but of course not quite, you know, certainly inspired by autobiography. Some of it, some of it. Yeah. Not, not everyone always puts that much. I think, you know, especially when, when we get, um, 10 minute or one act plays who a lot of times those come from prompts. So it's really interesting to hear about the, the, the genesis of all of, of these different plays. Um, and I guess maybe we can jump into that kind of thematic uh, juxtaposition that you gave us in Seal Island that Christy and I were discussing before this, where, um, well, first off, Brian Tishnell, just a little fun BTS fact for everybody, behind the scenes fact, uh, Brian Tishnell and I went to undergraduate together and we were in the same acting studio and we were really, really, really close friends. Um, we didn't have anything that ruined our relationship, <laughs> but we just, he lives on the West Coast now and I live on the East Coast. And so we don't get to speak or talk um, or see each other as much as we used to. But hearing him uh, portray John in this play about people who were really bonded in their 20s was very kind of nostalgic for me personally. Oh, it's um, Yeah, it was really great. It was a, a great treat. And we love having Brian on. Um, but to have that, right, that very, even if people don't go to college, I think Christy and I were talking about how it's pretty universal. It's this, you form these very strong bonds with people in your 20s, um, whether they're friendship relationships, romantic, and sometimes you have to figure out where it lies, I think, especially in that age. Um, and that's such a universal theme that we see, uh, you know, in TV and books and movies, whatever, because it's so human. And then you butted it up against this kind of, um, what did you call it, Christy? Local lore? You had a beautiful yes. phrase for it. Yeah, the local lore or the myth um, of this kind of sea siren seal, right? Um, in these parallel tracks um, and in your lovely touch of magical realism that we've seen from you before. Um, so what made you kind of meld these two themes together? Oh, um. Well, that's a good question. Uh, I think a, a number of things I've been writing lately have that element of magical realism. Um, and I'm not sure where that comes from. I mean, part of it, you know, I love stories where characters try to overcome some obstacle using humor and magic. And magic can be anything. It can be, you know, mythical creatures. It can be you know, a light reflecting in a room in a way that makes us see the room in a whole new way. Um, you know, magic comes from a lot of places, but in terms of the magical realism, I, I, I've stopped saying no to certain impulses in the writing. Um, so for example, I had a, this one's unproduced, but I have a play where I was um, tasked by a, a, a friend to try to write a piece that, had something to do with the um, opioid crisis, and I um, and I so I, I was thinking about you know where I grew up in the Hudson River Valley and um, some of the people I knew, and I was thinking the whole time I was writing it, make it real, make it real, make it real, make it real, 
And the Hudson River Valley is the birth of a number of American myths, such as the um, Headless Horseman. And it was also a place that had some financial stability up until IBM shut down a number of its factories and its buildings and such. And this was the 1990s. And so suddenly, while I'm sitting here thinking, okay, it's a 1990s play, keep it real, keep it real, keep it real, the Headless Horseman emerged out of the Hudson River and took an IBM computer monitor and rested it where it's meant to be. And I was like, well, there goes that. We'll just follow it. So I think there's a part of it where I just, you know, something pops up. I think, well, we'll just follow it. Like I didn't know when I was writing um, Seal Island, I didn't know there's going to be some kind of amalgam siren selkie creature. It's not quite a selkie. It's not quite a siren. It's a little bit of both. Um, And um, that character just kind of showed up, you know, and I love the possibilities of theater. Like what, what happens, you know, what would happen if a selkie showed up? What would happen if the headless horseman showed up and he was depressed and his head is a computer monitor? Like what, what would happen if I suppose. And, but at the same time, I don't want to lose the very everyday, you know, kind of, we know this, the story, the human story of, um, you know, whether it's, um, two people trying to figure out a way to communicate with each other when words fail, um, whether it's, um, you know, folks kind of seeing if there's really a friendship here, like in Seal Island, that they can preserve after um, a really tumultuous time in college. Um, you know, so I guess the short answer is, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> it just kind of happens, I guess. Um, but I think part of it is just that, you know, um, you know, we, we all carry around these mythologies that we've learned as kids from whatever area we're from. And sometimes those mythologies just continue to haunt us in ways that we don't even know until it, they kind of emerge during some other, you know, crisis or whether it's a writing exercise or whether you're having a conversation with somebody say, Hey, you know, that once upon a time, the, you know, there's a headless horseman or something. Um, so yeah, I don't know if I answered your question. I kind of went down a rabbit hole. I, I think you totally did. I think okay. the the brave thing is to let those things emerge, right? And that's what yeah. I think we're all seeking to do as humans and artists have to be continually brave to let those things emerge. And I will just say, you dropped two beautiful nuggets of wisdom in that answer that I'm really glad that this will be kind of our, our finale or at least our final interview um, that I hope people carry with them. You said, magic can be anything. And I think that's my new mantra now. (laughs) And um, also for all of our listeners, especially, you know, we're gearing this toward playwrights. You said, I stopped saying no to creative impulses. And I think that's so valuable for anybody in the arts, playwrights, actors, singers, dancers, engineers, whatever. Um, And I think that right in and of itself is the answer. Like I stopped saying no, the the what if, the what if, the what if, and let it happen. And so um, thank you. Thank you for encouraging and sharing that. And thank you for doing it in your work. We're happy to to bring it. Well, thank you for that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any plans to develop this work, this piece further, or you feel like it has accomplished exactly what it intended to? I feel good on this piece. I feel like it's it's where it needs to be. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if I need to continue working on it. I'd love to continue sending out love that you all are are producing it for the podcast i i'd love to see other f- people produce it out in the world um but i'm i feel like solid like this is we're in a good place with this 
Um, you know, some pieces invite, kind of invite you to come back and tinker with them and work on them that somebody says, oh, my story's not complete. You know, there's something missing here. And what was funny about this was that the process of editing and condensing it made it much more grounded for me. And I mean, there's nothing more that I'd want to add to it. And at this point, I don't think there's anything I could take away. Um, so I, I, I think that it's finished. I think these characters have have told us what they need to tell us. I found myself just getting more and more fascinated with the mythology of this story where I just want, I was like, I just want to be able to go online and Google more stories about this, you know, like other experiences and, you know, other, other um, local stories of some, you know, this person also says, and then they went, I just loved that. So um, I, I even told Dana, like this just got more and more fun and interesting to me, the more that went on. I really enjoyed it. Oh, completely. It felt very real to me too. Cause I was just out in La Jolla um, uh, San Diego doing a contract and uh, I there's a place out there I don't know if you're familiar John I didn't know I'm not really a, a West Coast person so this was a whole new experience for me this summer um, called the, the children's pool and it's a natural little cove within the beach um, that was like more shallow and originally children would go out and swim there but it has been taken over by the seals and the sea lions and so you go out, I'll have to send you pictures. I got all these pictures. I was like six feet from this giant sea lion who was like hopping his way up onto the beach and like rubbing his face in the seaweed and doing all this stuff. And there is something, this play, because I had that experience this summer, this play is like now even more tangible for me. And there is something truly inexplicable and magical about seals and sea lions because they do have almost these kind of like human eyes, but then they have the whiskers and they're also like so large, but they're very sleek. They're kind of anomalies and juxtapositions within themselves. So it was um, really cool that we, that you picked seal instead of, you know, a mermaid or a, you know, like even like a, I don't know what else, like a, what other sea creature, but it, that the, it was seal was very fascinating to me. <laughs> the last time we were up at the cabin in Maine, um, Danielle took the kids out. They had a little dinghy. So they took like the front yard was basically the sheep scout. I mean, the way it's described in the play and the, and they took, um, and she took the kids out in the dinghy and they actually had a seal follow them. And at one point it came up and looked at them and was so surprised by how close it was to them that it went back onto the water very quickly. It almost tipped the dinghy. Um, but then it just started following them the next couple of days as they went out and even started waiting for us um, at certain times of day, it would just kind of be towards the end of our little, little pier there and stick its head up out of the water as if to say, you guys coming out, you know, we hanging out today. Um, and so there was something very friendly about it. And, you know, um, and uh, it would just seem, seem like a being of, for lack of a better word, like a being of pure love. It was just this really, you know, sweet, sweet creature. And, um, you know, when we left, um, and we were there for two weeks the last time we were there, when we left, we thought, oh, man, we hope that the, <laughs> we hope the seal isn't too disappointed, you know, comes looking for us. Um, we were actually worried about it. Um, so, yeah, there was something really sweet and and kind of magical because, you know, the, the, the way that their eyes are, it's somewhere between humans and almost like, but also its own thing because the pupils can get really large and... Um, and you look at them and just the, their mouths. I mean, there's something almost dog-like about them. 
and then the rest of their body is like a large fuzzy fish and on their <laughs> on their fins they grow they grow fingernails they actually grow fingernails on their fins like like almost humanoid fingernails which is actually kind of disturbing um it's like why do you need those um well i guess they get itchy <laughs> uh just can't imagine them trying to i don't know what that would look like but um yeah they're just really wild creatures and and really really beautiful and uh and fun yeah that's beautiful they're you're right you kind of um in these love myths there's like sometimes in that not sometimes more often than not an underlying tone of like sexualization um mm-hmm. and like you totally desexualize them and it is like very very pure and that's why you're also reading this it's like these people could be played by any actors and I think it would work because you're just asking um, them to show up as themselves and be vulnerable. So that, oh. that really works. Thank you. And yes, absolutely. You know, there, there's no, you know, there's no pretense. Um, and even the, the circumstances, like it's about a group of people attempting genuine honesty to overcome whatever, all the, the stupid crap they did in college. Like so many of us did stupid crap in college. Cause I met, so I met, um, Danielle, my wife, when, um, I was, uh, a transfer student, um, I'd gone to community college and it took me three years to do the two year degree. So that was my super senior lap was at a community college and a great community college, Dutch community college, Poughkeepsie loved it. And my first week at SUNY New Paltz, I met Danielle and her friend JP. And at the time I was wearing like a, a suit jacket and a tie and jeans and um kind of fancy dress shoes i hadn't gotten the memo that new paltz was basically like woodstock you know like folks left the Uh summer of love 1968 and then kind of you know and danielle at the time was dressed a little bit more goth and our mutual friend jp saw me before he saw danielle he was waiting for her we're going to go to the cafeteria and eat together and he saw me and he was like john what are you doing you look like a seventh grade social studies teacher and I was like, what do you mean what I'm doing? This morning, whatever. And um and then Danielle came over and um and uh he said, Yeah, meet my friend John. He's a seventh grade teacher. And Danielle was like, Oh, what subject? I was like, Thanks. Thanks a lot. <laughs> and so, you know, we had a conversation and the way that it worked was that at this particular dining hall, you had to have like a meal plan on your card and have a declining balance. But I was a commuter, so I didn't do that. So Danielle had some extra points on her card and so she treated me to their buffet lunch there at hasbrook dining hall and we had a great conversation about music uh she was really in the time into sex pistols i was always a huge tom waits fan and um you know we hit it off as friends and i did end up asking her out but she said that she already you know she had a boyfriend and she wasn't really you know interested and i said that's cool and we remained friends for seven years you know kind of meeting up at different times, not meeting up at different times. Um, you know, the last time I attempted to ask her out, she said, well, you know, I might be interested in pursuing it, but I'm moving to China for six months. So I took her out of word until another friend of mine um, said to me, well, you know, when she says she's moving to China for six months, that's just an excuse. I was like, are you sure? It seems like a really odd thing to be like, oh, this isn't an episode of Friends. Like she's not trying to avoid me by moving to China. But I was like, all right. So I kind of, you know, backed off and then while she was in china we kept iming and then we dated for she came back for christmas break because she was from close to the area i was still living in new paltz and she um 
we dated for three weeks and then got engaged. And then six months later we were married. Um, and, uh, so that's kind of, that was kind of our journey. And so a huge part of the past, um, 16 years has been these visits to Maine, but also kind of talking about the various people we knew in college. What's this one doing? What's that one doing? And there are people that you still see on Facebook and you have every intention of seeing when you get back to the area. Um, cause there are folks who still live close to the Hudson Valley in Westchester or on Long Island or, you know, other places scattered around New York city, but it, you, it, there's never enough time. You can never figure it out. You can never manage. And so you find yourself saying next time, next time, next time. And you, you know, you feel kind of like, Oh man, maybe someday this will happen, but it's been years. And so, um, knowing that this group of characters in seal Island are trying to make like next time, next time, like this time, especially when there's all this unresolved business, um, you know, cause you have the other romance going on between John and Jesse um, and, uh, you know, it gets to be, um, it gets to be quite wild. And then there's this other character, Steven, who's just not there. And we get yes, some, we, we wanted to bring yeah. him up. So this is a, yeah. a perfect seg. Um, Christy and I, uh, were discussing this prior to the interview too, about, uh, this device that you use, you know, a literary dramatic device of having a character off stage. So we have a, kind of realized life, right? He's important and integral to this group. He keeps being brought up, but we never see Steven, um, you know, and this is the device of having action or people off stage has been used for a very, very long time. Um, what, what made you kind of keep Steven out of the mix and make it just these three plus sellers? Well, I, I have an old college buddy and we were very close for a while. We had a bit of a falling out. And so, I, I'm, you know, when, when one has a falling out later, you kind of think, do I want to reach out to this person? And I know that they've thought, do I reach out to him? You know, a lot of water under the bridge. And so I thought about, well, what does it mean to have somebody in your life who's still a presence, but not necessarily there? You know, they might be a phone call away. They might be an email away. It might be a text away. Um, but you know, what happens if you don't reach out to them and what might stop you from actually reaching out to them? You know, to what extent, to what extent are you, you know, could you be healing to what extent could you be opening up old wounds? Um, and so, um, and I don't think I'm telling, <laughs> Hey, I doubt very much doubt this person will listen to this episode, but B, if they did, you know, I'm sure they're sitting there nodding too, saying, yes, that's true. You know, this is why we don't talk. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, so, so I, I thought about, um, well, what if there was a character like that? What if there was somebody who, if they invited them in, the dynamic would change entirely in a way that maybe could offer some healing, but in the other way, it could also reopen some old wounds and could very much just change the tenor of the, of the trip. You know, it reminds me that... So at one time, a, a friend of mine and I, we went down to New York City and um, the plan was just to hit up a couple of places, nothing crazy, have a couple of drinks, get something to eat. Um, and we thought, hey, let's let's ask um, somebody. And this was a work friend, but we're still close. We're like, hey, let's ask another work buddy to come down with us, you know, just so we all have a good time. What we didn't realize is that the other work buddy who was very mellow, very chill, very relaxed. But if he had a couple of drinks in him, he was just angry and rude and belligerent. And it just 
changed the whole evening to the point where we thought, can we just leave him here? <laughs> you know, what would happen if we just left him down here? Like, would he find his way back? You know, to what to what responsibility do we have? Because he's going to get into an argument with somebody, and we are going to have to say like, we don't know him or something. You know, because the dynamic just changed entirely. So imagine that in this case, like if you bring Stephen in, you know, there would be it would be an unfulfilled trip. Um, but yet there's still that curiosity of like, did anybody call him? Where is he? You know, what's going on with him? So we didn't reach out to him because he was part of this group, but you know, he was kind of the, also kind of the wrecking ball in the group. Um, you know, and I, I love offstage characters because you can learn so much about the characters on stage by whom they invite and don't invite, um, who they include in plans and don't include in plans and why, um, gives you some of their worldview. Um, gives you some of their backstory in a way that's very, very organic. Um, especially when characters make plans. That's like a Jeffrey Sweet thing. If you know the playwright Jeffrey Sweet, if you read his book, Dramatist mm-hmm. Toolkit, that he's big on having getting around exposition by having characters make future plans. So here's a group of people together making plans. Here's the plan. But in that plan, here's we excluded. Did anybody call him? Is anybody going to call him? Why or why not? And we get so much more from them in a way that's very organic. And meanwhile, this other character becomes a real person as well, partially because I imagine a real person, but, you know, partially because of the way that he's discussed and the way that we understand that the way the dynamic would change if he was, um, if he was brought on stage. That's really satisfying for me to hear because that was sort of the narrative I told myself about Steven (laughs) was too much of a wild card. We're not sure how it would go. So we're going to leave him out of this. I certainly have had those past relationships, friendships where there, man, there's such an de- internal debate of, do I reach out? Do I risk it? Versus I know the beast I'm dealing with if I don't, and we'll keep it at that for now. So that's very satisfying to me to, for me to hear that. Oh, I was going to say that, you know, when I would, I remember like going to karaoke, like every Wednesday night with him and a group of others, when I was in college part two, going for the bachelor's, and karaoke started at 11 o'clock at night and the bar closed at like four o'clock in the morning. And then the next day was Thursday and it was time for class. And, you know, 24 years ago, that was very like, oh, that's very doable. But like now I couldn't even imagine. And I know that there's some folks who are, you know, I'm 45 and folks who are in the 40s who can still do that. Like, let's go out, let's party, let's have a celebration. And I will say on this, line um of the steven character as an audience member i was almost drawing parallels to steven being the missing link like you said and like oh well because these three these other three are here maybe we can't include him blah blah blah. and then you have sellers um who becomes kind of a part of the four but is really only close to claire not really fully enmeshed in the group in the same way that steven doesn't really get fully enmeshed in the group um, are there any parallels there in your mind between these two characters? I think in some ways, I mean, they're a complete contrast. Um, because Sellers, towards the end, doesn't necessarily avoid the group. But like you said, isn't enmeshed in the group. I think that Sellers kind of gives Claire to permission, just by being herself, like to understand what it is that she wants and what she doesn't want. 
that relationship is so beautiful and so unique. And I was really in awe of how you fleshed that out in so little action and so little dialogue, actually. Um, I was going to say, Dana, I actually, as far as my notes go, I think I've hit... I, I did have like one other question, but it's just a small one. Um, Ask it. Didn't know if you had anything else. No, we hit all the points. Ask your question. Okay. And and John, you did sort of already touch on this. So I apologize if it seems a little redundant, but I did. I When you started by talking about the experience of listening to this, this reading, um, was there anything that surprised you by listening to this reading i would say that the something that really struck me was how much they sounded like real people how i mean how much the characters sounded real how these performers brought them to life um they felt like people i know they felt like people i hang out with and that was a joy um and um and even sellers like felt very real to me um, this kind of magical mythical creature is like, oh, I, I believe that this person could be a creature, but I also believe they're a person. You hear characters a certain way in your head when you write. And um, and I tend to do that. I don't know if other people do this, but after I write the lines or sometimes as I write the lines, I say the lines out loud to make sure that sounds like something people might say. Um, even if it's a bit more absurd, it's like, well, in this world, in the story, you know, because the words build the story. Is this building the story? But is this also like something people might say? Um, and so hearing this cast, I thought, oh, yes, that's it's very organic. It feels very natural. And so that's a that's a huge you know testament to the talents involved with the ensemble theater Chattanooga and um, the, the folks that you bring in to to do this podcast. Um, so. Yeah, I was I was really blown away by by the performances. I was like, good, we love to hear that. Honestly, that that's your that was your experience. That's wonderful. That would be my hope for all of our listeners to have that same experience. So we are not going to ask you as many questions as we did in the first season. It's okay. season three now, so we've narrowed it down to three personal questions that we ask all of our playwrights at the end of every interview. Okay. Um, so we'll do those in just a moment, but we always like to give everybody, um, just as we did in the first season, a chance to let our listeners know any place they can follow you on social media, new play exchange, if there's any performances, readings, other interviews or whatever you want to shout out. Um, we will do that here so that anybody can find anything about you and keep following on your journey. I don't really do social media. Um I have a Facebook page, but not really, I don't do Twitter or I, I find that my blood pressure is much better now that I've gotten a lot of that stuff out of my life. Um, but I do have a new play exchange page. And so if you go on to new play exchange and just search my name on new play exchange, you'll find me. I will go ahead and start with the first one. Do you have a word that is a particular favorite of yours or that you like to use? You'd like to hear one that you're just kind of drawn to? At present, my favorite word is tangelo. I just love that word. It's a very specific color of like a very bright orange. And it's also a fruit. And when we were in the supermarket years ago um, with my son and he was maybe two years old and I saw a display of tangelos and I picked one up and I looked at him and said, tangelo. And he thought that was the funniest thing he had ever heard. And so much so that we moved here. Um, the previous owners said, hey, we have a room we want to paint a special color for you. 
what color would you like that? And I said, tan jello. And they were like, really? I was like, yes. And so we have a tan jello room. And before we moved in, the previous owners called us and said, you know, we thought that was the weirdest, wackiest color that you could say, because most of the house is kind of blue, kind of some brown. And they said, but we find ourselves gravitating towards that Tangelo room every day now. There's just something warm there. And now it's my daughter's room. So my daughter's room is Tangelo. It's a great word to say, and it's bright and it's cheerful. Tangelo. That's awesome. Now I'm going to be seeking out more Tangelo in my life. Um. <laughs> it's a uh, so the second uh, question, which again, Hopefully your answer has changed or it doesn't have to have, but um, we like to ask about uh, a favorite or, you know, one of your favorite tops, dear, loved, adored, uh, place or setting. Um, it can be real. It can be fictional. It could be in one of your plays, um, but just a location or place that you really hold dear. There's a place in the Hudson Valley but I'm not going to say where it is because it's my special place, but it's a tiny, (laughs) it's a tiny state park. Um, that if one drives through the woods past my parents' house and through a couple of winding roads away from the, the state routes, there's a little state park where there's a trail and a lake. And then the trail circles around the lake and crosses the street and goes up over a hill and then when it crests, you're looking out, you're up on a rock, and you're looking up over, out over the entire Hudson Valley. You see the Hudson River, and you can see straight out to the Berkshires. And um, it's become a place that I, I started going there in 1997. My friend Sergio invited me. He said, I found this place. Here's directions. And it was very cold. It was January. And he set up a little chessboard on one of the benches, and it was just all just hung over with snow and ice and blue and white. I couldn't believe the just how majestic it was and and surreal. It almost felt like a movie set. And so we just kind of crunched along the snow and sat down. And I said, I have to come back here in the spring. And he said, you have to come back here every day. And so I went back and um, pretty regularly, and I still go back. Um, going up to the Hudson Valley, it's just um, – and I even was talking to my son about it today in the car. We, we talk about mortality sometimes, uh, but in a way that's not like morose and um, – you know, I was telling about him, my, my, you know, telling him about my plans of what, you know, what I'm what, what I might be like when I retire. I imagine that I'll either be a putterer or I'll be like the guy who just sits out in a lawn chair and waves to everybody. The latter sounds much nicer. And uh, I said, but you know, one day when I go, you know where to scatter my asterisks. He's like, yes, dad. And, you know, I was like, man, that's just a, you know, whenever I have a moment of anxiety and I have anxiety, like many people have anxiety and you know, all the other stuff that just thinking about that place thinking about the walk the last the before september the last time i was there over the summer i had a gout flare-up it's kind of like john in the in the play and i still hiked the trail still made the walk up because i'm like nothing will stop me from doing this um (laughs) absolutely beautiful particularly in the autumn it's my favorite place in the world okay final question do you have an item that is particularly precious to you or that you are particularly fond of yes um can you hold on for one second i'm like we're going on a field trip show and tell yes i don't know if you can tell from the things behind me but i'm a bit of a toy and comic book collector and um 
one of my favorite items is this. And what it is, it's a glow-in-the-dark Phantom of the Opera figure. And there's a company that released these in the early 1980s. And when I was in, it's the Lon Chaney from the silent movie. And so um, I, I was living in Rutherford, New Jersey when I was a, a little kid and, you know, K through two. And in second grade, the um, fifth graders had a bake sale. I went to a small neighborhood school, one of each grade. And, um, and so I had a whole pocket full of money. And I was ready to buy donuts and cookies because I've always had a sweet tooth too, although I'm trying to be better about it now. And the, um, and this kid, oh my God. And this kid was, um, he had this action figure and I said to him, what is that? And he said, oh, this is part of the new monster line that came out. And I was like, holy cow. I was like, I think he's awesome. He's like, I'll sell him to you because he wanted more treats too. And I was like, how much? He's like two bucks, like two bucks. Now this is 1984, like two bucks. It's like, I got, I got like 75 cents. He's like 75 cents. And so I bought, and he said, but I get to keep the cape. And I said, fine. So he took the cape off and I got the figure. And um, I have since bought another one with a better paint job. I bought one still on box. And um, and they played the old Lon Chaney Phantom of the Opera um, regularly on um, WPIX in New York late at night. And so I made my dad record it. And so uh, by the time the Android Weber musical came out a couple of years later, I was obsessed and primed and ready. I knew everything about this character. I annoyed the crap out of like my seventh grade um, technology teacher one day. Um, you know, every interpretation, I even wrote my own version. They did it at under St. Mark's theater going back seven years ago, uh, not under St. Mark's, excuse me, the crane theater seven years ago. Oh, it didn't, <laughs> didn't do well. The one critic who, um, couple critics liked it, but the one critic who saw it said she'd rather blow up the theater than watch the last 10 minutes of the play. So that could have maybe given us another phantom of the opera, but, you know, but, um, but nonetheless, I, I loved writing it. I love this character. I love the world of story. This is one of my favorites, you know, on another day, I might pick something else. I've got a couple of old Batman toys from the eighties as well, but, um, but this one at present is, is certainly like wherever I go, I know where, I know where this one is. That's awesome. That. That's one of the more unique answers. I've always loved Phantom of the Opera, so that just... But what a perfect ending that you chose this object um, when we were talking about this play, Seal Island, um, because this quite literally proves that since the age of seven, you were obsessed with myth and mystery. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant Um, point. (laughs) Very true. So thank you so much for sharing and thank you for coming back. We we will co- we'll have you back every season if you'd like. <laughs> oh, I would love that. I would love that. The Ensemble Theater Chattanooga and the Lights Up Podcast were one of 11 organizations across the Chattanooga Valley to receive grant funding through the Sustaining the Humanities Through the American Rescue Plan. As part of this podcast, for each episode, we would like to highlight one of the other organizations receiving a sharp grant. RISE is an independent, minority-led, 501c3, nonprofit community arts organization dedicated to the development of creative programming and events that aim to transcend cultural barriers while promoting more awareness, vibrancy, inclusiveness, and resiliency for the greater Chattanooga communities. What started as a day-long festival honoring Jazz History Month in 2011 
aptly named Jazzanuga, has evolved into a Black-founded, independent, and thriving community-based nonprofit that serves thousands of individuals annually. Jazzanuga created and implemented an extensive strategic plan that placed a special emphasis on actively engaging our underserved community members by providing an array of community arts programming that creates new opportunities for creative experimentation and community transformation. Jazzanuga began to envision itself as a multifaceted cultural institution that would strive to revitalize and sustain Chattanooga's cultural arts heritage through three linked intervention initiatives, cultural preservation, community education, and performance. As we continue to evolve aesthetically and programmatically to better serve our community, the organization's message and brand must evolve as well. We have taken great pride in working directly in the community and giving voice and opportunities to those that may have been overlooked and underserved. We are proud to share that we will continue our mission and vision with the name of RISE, Responsive Initiatives for Social Empowerment. This name is more reflective of the work we do and more aspirational like the people, communities, and the city we serve. For more information, you can visit them on the web at www.risecha.org. That's www.risecha.org. Lights Up is a podcast produced by the Ensemble Theatre of Chattanooga, a 501c3 nonprofit independent theatre company located in southeast Tennessee. Lights Up is hosted by Christy Gallo and Dana Colagiovanni. Sound by Eric Red Wyatt. Graphics by Jamie Goodnight. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, copied, or presented without the expressed written consent of the Ensemble Theatre of Chattanooga. The plays presented on this podcast are protected by all national and international copyright laws. If you are interested in producing any of the plays featured on Lights Up, contact us and we will get you in touch with the playwright. If you would like your play considered for a future episode or would like to be an actor or a reader, please shoot us a message at lightsup at ensembletheaterofchattanooga.com. As a nonprofit, ATC relies on donations and the goodwill of patrons and supporters like you. If you would like to make a one-time donation to ETC, please visit our website for details. You can also support us by giving us a like and rating this podcast.